Vernomatic Productions. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody. As always, Thursday nights, new content drops. Tonight's show, we're continuing our History of Metal series. The year 1990. Co-host Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke are going to be joining me in just a second. We're going to find out what it's like in the metal landscape as the 80s come to an end, the 90s come in, and things are upside down. That's coming up in just a second, but first... Remind you to get up to that MetalMayhemROC.com website. Do us a favor. Join our community. Get on the email mailing list. Get updates on new shows. Links to the radio show on Monday night. Coming up in the next couple weeks, right before the holidays, a brand new merch page is coming up with tons of goodies for you and your favorite metalhead at the holidays. While you're there, download some past shows, subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. All that kind of stuff really does help. Recent episodes included Rick Ventura of Riot Act and formerly of the band Riot. Their direct support on the Fall Raven Tour across America. Metal Mayhem is bringing that tour to Rochester for a showcase show next Thursday, October 13th, over at Photo City Music Hall. It's their only Western New York appearance, by the way. Come on down. You can buy tickets on our website. Go to the House of Guitars, Record Archive. $20. Great show. Two killer opening bands locally. Wicked and Displacer are on the bill. It's a low-dose show for four killer bands. So Rick Ventura was on talking about the Riot Act band. Nigel Glockler of Saxon, his new band 6x6, was on a couple weeks ago. And Frank Bellow of Anthrax talking about their fall UK and Europe tour. So that's what you could find at the website. There's tons of goodies there. But let me get Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke out of the green room and ready for this show. Hey, Metal Walt, you ready for 1990? Indeed I am. It actually feels weird even saying it because you don't associate metal and the hair bands with the 90s, right? But um, 90 is really a mix of many, many things. And let's not fool ourselves here. The 80s trend continued, just maybe not from the big bands like Def Leppard and Bon Jovi, but there were still many, many hair, Sunstrip Trip type bands that were releasing new albums, a lot of debuts. Um, And then you get into the heavier scene, you had a lot of rebound albums from some of the bigger bands. Uh, There was a super group that formed. There was a major singer from a major artist that had a song, a really strong solo release, and then that same band came out with a release later in the year. Um, one major, major band that was always on the rise, kind of hit their peak in 1990. Um, the thrash scene was thriving. There was a big tour with a bunch of bands on there. And then there was the influence of uh, the changing of the scene. You got a couple really big artists that would really, really grow in the 90s, and they cut their teeth uh, in 1990. And then a few side notes about uh, some of the, let's say, the events that happened. So 
Um, that's 1990 in a nutshell. It's a big mix. Um, what we like to do right now is let's just start talking about some of those 80, 80s bands, right? Let's get right into it. There's no rhyme or reason. Cinderella releases Heartbreak Station. You know what? In my opinion, this was this was the end of them, right? I mean, I don't know. I think they came out with maybe one more album after this. It was a so-so album. It continued on that bluesy track. You had the title track and then Shelter Me, which was still a, a smash on the MTV. But overall, it was a bit of a, a clunker to me. Um, Ian, you know, tell us something about some of these debuts, Firehouse, Steelheart, you know, any of them. You know, Steelheart was was pretty big. So was Firehouse. I mean, Firehouse, you you basically could say that they, you know, their their career was based on that first album because not many people can recount a lot of material from the second album unless you're a deep dark uh, Firehouse fan. But it would it really was a solid, good hard rock, you know, or pop metal, whatever you want to call it, album. But when it came out. Steelheart was another one, you know, I mean, they kind of um, put themselves on a, on a different transcendency. Um, you know, Mikhail, uh, whatever is, you know, how do I really say his name there went on later on in the early two thousands to do a lot of the vocal work on the, the rock star soundtrack and the band continued to tour. They were are huge uh, in the European uh, metal scene over there. You know, a lot of that AOR type stuff, they do a lot of festival shows and really jam uh, jam out pretty good. They they always do a good draw. So um, I thought they were great. Um, Extreme, you know, they had their second album, which I know you and I have talked about it before. Corner Graffiti, I mean, that is a monster of an album. And that, you know, even going without the, the two big, um, you know, laid back numbers that kind of dominated the uh, MTV. You know, they had uh, Decadence Dance was the first song off there and they just went ahead and, and kicked it in with the afterburner. So that was a really great album. Um, I got, I got a question. Steelheart. Is that that yeah. band that had that one song? The first, yeah, that one big power ballad was their first big song. Yeah. Oh, that's the only song, old, only song I've ever remembered though. I agree with you, Vern. Never Let You Go is the only song I can never think of with Steelheart, and it's the only thing I'm aware of from that album. I sometimes get Steelheart and Fire and Firehouse confused, but Firehouse, I agree with Ian. They that was a cool band, man. They had rockers and just just that towed that perfect line of eighties slash catchy and heavy. I just remember this band. They to me it streams strip club music, right? I remember back then. Don't Treat Me Bad, Shake and Tumble, All She Wrote. I feel like that was me at my first strip bar when I was 21 in 1991, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. But that Steelheart song, that's a tearjerker. That's like a, yeah, it's a wedding. It's a wedding song. Yeah. It's a or, wedding song. Or like, a, you know, an end of a like a rom-com movie. But hey, listen, great song. First dude, though, that I ever heard that was able to hit that register above uh Halford. I mean this guy was you know almost approaching Mariah Carey um you know s- s- heights with his uh his vocal prowess and th- that was pretty impressive at the time. I remember that. Well, you guys are on a roll. Uh Warrant, Cherry Pie. This was their heyday. Um was that from the it was Cherry Pie their second their follow up to that dirty yeah. rotten filthy rich album? Yep. And that was, you know, Waldo attests to this too. 
you know, Jamie Lane went on record. He was like, you know, he did not want to write that song, Cherry Pie. But the record company insisted they needed some kind of single. They wanted to call the album Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was the was the second song that they released for the album. And you can tell at this point, you know, this is the one thing you're going to see with a lot of these bands. After Appetite for Destruction and after the uh, explosion of Metallica, uh, darker, heavier, grittier side started to rear its head with a lot of these uh, you know, pop bands, they finally were like, okay, we can do the stuff that we want to do that way. And that's what they tried to do. But unfortunately, this was another example of the record company determining what was going to be done by the band. But overall, it's a that's good a, album. Well, and that's a fair point, Ian. But that, listen, look at that, look what that title track did for their career. Oh, like shit. the first album was big. <laughs> the video alone, yeah. it stood out. You had the sexy girl in there in the, in the cutoff shorts and the tank top. Licking sure. her fingers with the cherry pie. I think one of either one of the guys from Poison or a crew or somebody ended up you know with that girl at some point in time. Yeah, Jan- Janie Lane married her. They were together for a long time. Yeah, Bobby Brown. Yep, Bobby Brown was hot. Yeah, that was well. That was <laughs> she was hot, but that was the visual. Oh yeah, and that was the downfall of this type of music. Yeah. This is yeah. what. Kurt Cobain and those other wanwas were all crying about. You know, yeah, this would probably be the apex of it at that point. <laughs> yeah, there, I think. Uh, yeah, Warren wasn't that bad. Um, I'm sorry, Walt. I uh, hijacked your thought. So, no, it's okay. I think let's we can revisit some of these maybe later too. But let's just finish out the debuts. All right. So you had two other ones. You had the the Trickster self titled debut. And again, I have a soft spot for these guys because they're local guys. Steve sure. Brown and PJ Farley are still out in the scene. They're playing around with Eric Martin in 2022. You know what? Yeah. They're again a band I thought was a little soft at the time, but I really came to appreciate these guys. They were warrior guys that cut their teeth in the North Jersey scene and made it. Um, and then the other one is Lynch Mob, Wicked Sensation, Oni Logan, George Lynch. You got the title track, River of Love. Ian, you're the guitar player. That had to resonate it. with you a little bit, that album. Huge. Because I was always a disciple of Eddie Van Halen, but Lynch was one of those guys that came in right afterwards that I followed adamantly. And I waited with bated breath for this CD to come out at the time. Actually, I, I own it on cassette because I was still a devout cassette listener because I still thought that it sounded better. But yeah, man, I mean, Wicked Sensation was a freaking great album from top to bottom. You got Wild Mick Brown on the drums, Anthony Esposito on the bass. It was a really great, solid band. Um, you know, Oni Logan, I think, you know, he was another guy that got a little too big for his own head, you know, and then this started getting yeah. in the way and so did a little bit of the coke and everything else. And after they did that initial first tour, he and Lynch was pissed because he kept freaking screwing up on the, you know, on stage, and he's like, no, I'm done with this. I don't want him anymore. So that took a long time. Allegedly well, on that um, that Coke incident. Yeah. Allegedly. Oh, well. Now, okay. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fast forward to 2022. <laughs> I just read yeah. a year ago, I heard they switched the name from Lynch Mob because it wasn't PC. And then I just read right. the other day that, what, a lot is that Ani guy back in the band and Lynch yeah. Mob. He's been in and out of that band probably 10 different times. You'd have yeah. to do a Wikipedia search on the amount of members that have been in that band. They've had – it was actually comical. I think last year they were running into problems with singers, and they were literally pulling people 
in local areas to fill in for three yeah. or four shows at a time. Yeah. It was pretty pathetic, actually. But the, the funny thing was they 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 went back to Lynch Mob. I guess they're not too PC anymore. Uh, well, I think to, what I, I knew it was Electric Freedom or something like that was the name of the band. Yeah, I, whether or not he's sticking with it, I don't goddamn well, know. And, you know, you do you do a search on it, and it's he still comes up with all the information. Lynch mob. Well, I'm telling you, as that we taped this uh, October fourth, twenty twenty two, the yeah. I just saw on Blabbermouth or somewhere that the big headline: Lynch mob regrouping, new material. But it was it wasn't this electric whatever you said it was. It was Lynch mob. So. Yeah. Uh, in any case, against uh, poison, flesh and blood. Last one with CC. Okay. Okay. Yep. Is it any good? It's got some solid stuff on there. It wasn't as um, commercially successful, I think, as what had come before. But I mean, it still had some great songs. This was where you started to see um, what ended up becoming the next stage with Cots. And, you know, you could see where Brett Michaels influence with the uh, songwriting was starting to come in a little bit more. Um, there, it wasn't as much, you know, where if he needed something with some heft and some balls that CC, you know, was one of the co-writers, uh, it, you know, and you could see where this band was starting to fray, at least internally, you know, some of those guys with the, you know, the drinking drugs and ego and everything I, else, but I, if, it wasn't uh, terrible. If you say so. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, um, <laughs> All right, and then the other uh, King of the Hill in that era, Rat Detonator by 1990. Nah. No? Nah, listen, that was, this was, I think they've, they put out the same album, the last three albums. It was like two, maybe three good songs and nothing left. This was the the end of their, their time. They were a club band at this point. Yeah. Nothing. Loving You is a Dirty Job was a good song and maybe Shame, Shame, Shame. But what else? I don't remember anything about this album. Robin Crosby's yeah. last time in the band recording. Yeah, it was the end. Believe it or not, the the one song there, um, Nobody Rides for Free, that they did uh, for the Point Break soundtrack is probably better than anything that, that's on this album. You know, it's just got a, it's got a whole better groove to it. You know, it sounds a lot better. I mean, I know Robin's not there, but, you know, it just it, it feels more like the progression of Rat as it should have been where – this album was kind of like a regurgitation, you know. It's well, fun fact, fun fact from Metal Waltz concert archives. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. There's only been there's only been twice in my 30 something years of concert going where I've seen two shows in the same day. And December 1990, I saw the Judas Priest Megadeth Testament show at the Meadowlands Arena. It was a Friday night. Hold wow. ass home, dropped my friend off. Drove to Lemoore's in Brooklyn, which is 50 minutes by car. And at that time, bands went on at like 2 in the morning. And I saw Rat on the Detonator tour at Lemoore. Oh, so two shows in one night. That's awesome. What What is it awesome is your buddy didn't double dip with you. Why didn't he go with you? <laughs> yeah, you stuck it to him. Why didn't, that, why didn't yeah. your buddy go with you? I... I, I think he was a little judgmental of those uh, 80s bands at the time and he was like no thanks it's 11 30 just drop me off ah that's well cool. you know what well that's a great story um thanks for sharing that but and if fast forward in another when we're doing 15 to 20 years later in about another three years i'll tell you about the second time that happened okay well you know what that's <laughs> a nice right. tease but what yeah. isn't a tease 
was the thrash tour of the summer, which was Clash of the Titans. Slayer, Megadeth, Anthrax, and Alice in Chains. I had a chance to see it up at Darien Lake. It was all of that. Fantastic. Um, that was 1990, right? Or is that the spring that of 1990? What's that? Yeah. Summer 1990. Yep. Okay, yeah. I know the albums came out. Uh, yeah. Megadeth, rest in peace. Uh, some great say, album. yeah, great album. Their pinnacle, their 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 Apex. best album. Yeah, pretty close. I mean, I think so. Holy Wars, Punishment, do. Yep. Now, if you were into Hangar eighteen, if you were to someone never heard Megadeth and you were to play them, this is Megadeth, and they listen to that. You know those guys that do those videos. You know, like the two black dudes that do the videos and they don't know metal yep. and they sit yep. there and they watch the Megadeth uh, Holy Wars Punishment do one. So right. uh, they still Megadeth still ends the show with, with that. Uh, Hangar 18, uh, Lucretia, uh, you know, the whole album is just great. Ian, which and it was a different sound. Sorry, but it was a different yeah. sound, guys. It was like. It was like, I don't know what to say. It was like maybe Marty Freeman and Nick Menza coming in, but it was like it it, it matured them and maybe made them, it, it, yeah. it sounded like more of a musician's thrash album than prior. And yeah. I think that's what I was enamored with there, right? Yeah. And I think the song structures were not so one-dimensional. And right. yeah, I, I mean, that was my takeaway. It was my selling point to loving that band. Yeah, yeah the, the musicianship with Menza and um, Friedman coming in, jumped up huge. And it was so much, uh, you could see, you know, it's like we talked about before with Metallica, you know, the major jump from Kill 'em All to Ride the Lightning, you know, and Ride the Lightning is kind of like that, you know, oh my God, but then you've got Master that comes afterwards and you can see this, it's just a succession. Well, what happened was those early albums, they were great. They were still very raw. As soon as he got this band together and they were working on this material, it just went kaboosh. It just blew right up, man. They were, it was a huge album. I loved this album when it came out. It was probably the first real Megadeth album that I got fully behind. You know, some yeah. of the other stuff, I liked a lot of it, but some of it, I was like, eh, this one, I was like, nope, this is great. I love it. I own it on, on, I think I own it on cassette and on CD still. So, yeah, I was definitely impressed. Anthrax. What was that Anthrax? They had, uh, Persistence of Time. In time. Great album. You think? <laughs> really? I like it because they're another one Heavy. that they kind of had this own progression on their own, the way that they did things. You know, you could see where they were kind of shifting. You know, I mean, that, oh, man. It just that first video for when when time came out, it was like such a I was like, oh, my God, listen to this thing, you know, and the breakdowns in it with the. I mean, it just was monsters, man. Monsters. It was a heavy, 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 dark album. Yeah. Heavy, dark album. And they called it. They said, I remember when they went out on a maiden tour, they said, this is going to be a different album. A different okay. album than the prior ones, right? They they stripped themselves. They got rid of the shorts and the yellow shirts, and they were back to being metal. I mean, keep it in the family, belly of the beast, right? Uh, belly time. of the beast is so good. Yeah, I mean, the only outlier time. in there became the uh, the, the hit, 
Got the Time was the outlier in the album. That became the right. only single from the album, right? right? But the rest of it is is completely one common common theme. I don't think it aged well, and I didn't really care for it that much, honestly. I, w- really? I was just so into Among the Living. And, Among is uh, great, though. Um, yeah. uh, spread into Disease. You yeah. know, the, the, the first three, I was, the State of Euphoria was terrible. You know, they it was yeah. like, hey, we've gone I over this. It. But Persistence... I, it wasn't bad. It's an, I just um, I think I, I think in a nutshell, I started steering away from Anthrax a little bit. I was I just liked their earlier stuff so much more. See, that, I could see where this is a huge launch pad to when John Bush came and they made that change mm-hmm. because you could see where this is part of that you know that musical progression. You know, that it was it was almost like it was something that they needed to do. At that point, so yeah. that way they could change their their uh, their trajectory a little bit. Lance, I know you're not too much into it, but uh, any take on Slayer Seasons in the Abyss? Because this is another. No, I, I, yeah, I, I did like this one. I, I think you know I'm not the biggest junkie of Slayer, but the title track "War Ensemble," "Dead Skin Mask." You know, I mean, I think those are all killer. Yeah, classic, legendary yeah. Slayer songs. The album cover was was amazing, and I think again putting them on that package tour maybe the first of many, many to come down the line. It was an exposure to them to a broader audience where they can now fit in with the genre and, and you see three or four of these bands out in the road at the same time. So, yeah, I really appreciated that one. And definitely, that was my first time seeing them at the Garden on that Clash of the Titans tour, and it was great. It was great. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a big Slayer fan. That Their first four or five, you know, the, the, that sequence, and this fit right in there. I really like the seasons in the abyss. And then uh, that when Testament came around with Souls of Souls of Black, yeah. you know, um, it was another dark album, very dark yeah, was, album. Was, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> very yeah, dark. Yeah, but that was another great album, you know. And unfortunately, you know, that was that kind of that lead up towards uh, um, Skolnick, you know, and you know leaving. Uh, by the time they were going to to work on the next thing there, you know, I mean, it's all these bands, you know, I mean, I, you have to wonder if it's, um, you know, musicians getting burnt out doing stuff, you know, like Skolnick, I mean, when he ended up leaving for a while there, he was doing like jazz fusion yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And actual jazz. Yeah, you're right. Um, and then he got the gig with, um, you know, with Sabotage, you know, years down the road, you know, for a handful of rain, but yeah, I mean, all this stuff is great. And let's not discount, the band that toughed it out through all that bullshit on this tour was Allison Chains yeah. opening up for these guys. Yeah. I mean, they were getting, can, you know, people were, you know, yelling and throwing shit. And by, you know, Kerry King has said it. He goes, but they went out there and fucking did it. He goes, and they put on a show every time. Yeah. And by the time they rolled along, everybody was like, these guys are legit. Yeah. You know, well, they, they, yeah, yeah. they got some street cred because yeah. they, they ran with the, you know, the, the bad yep. kids from the wrong side of the track. And yep. yeah, well, Jerry Cantrell, that was, um, you know, it was, it was a nice segue from the old guard of the metal guys into what was to come. And maybe, sure. you know, quite frankly, maybe Alice in Chains had a bad label. Maybe they just got thrown into that grunge pool and maybe that was wrong. Maybe they weren't grunge. Were they grunge? I think, yeah, maybe. They had some grunge, but see the grunge aspect of it is just that dark underbelly Seattle factor. Yeah, the yeah. Seattle factor. That's the biggest thing, you know, because prior to this, 
Soundgarden and the Melvins were doing it way before all of them. Yeah. yeah you know, know, and then you had Nirvana come along with the Bleach stuff. And then you had, you know, Green River and some of these other bands. And at the same time was when Alice in Chains was cutting their teeth. You know, you know, you look at the, well, look at the one picture there. Uh, if you ever get a chance on the back side of the, the CD for facelift and it's literally got them laying in this pile of sand in a quarry and Lane Staley yeah. is wearing a tie dyed spandex because yeah. for all intents and purposes, a lot of the stuff that they did was along that eighties metal kind yeah. of thing, you know? So, I mean, they, yeah. they never delineated completely from it. They just were a different child in that, in that family. That's all it was, you know, but, you know, those the Allison Chains and Soundgarden will always be the the top two on that group for me. And and hey, Ian and, and Vern, one thing about Allison Chains in '90, and this is another interesting fact from my road stories. Yeah, they toured that Clash of the Titans, but then uh, they actually got the opening slot on the King's X uh, Faith, Hope, and Love tour. And I saw yeah. them about three months later at the Cat Club in New York City, or I'm sorry, the Limelight. And, uh, again, you talk about a different audience. I mean, even a bigger, oh, different huge. audience at a club. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget it. I, I'll never forget watching Alice in Chains. And I already had seen him at the Garden. And then I went there to see him again. And then in between sets, Allison, I mean, uh, King's X is setting up. And I, I look over my left shoulder, and there's this dude standing there drinking a Heineken. And who is it but Lane Staley? You know, yeah. and at the time I was young, man. I wanted to go up to him, but I, I didn't have the balls to do it. But yeah, I mean, think about that playing a little club with yeah. King's X. Yep, and you know? King's X, so, man. They were on a trajectory too at that time, man. You know, they were one of those bands. Yeah, you know, you yeah. had you had that. You know, the stuff that was going on with Alice in Chains, and you know, obviously Soundgarden. You know, the, prior to this, you know, but you had uh, King's X. <coughs> excuse me, and for all intents and purposes, Living Color kind of was in that it was something different. You know, they yep. they were one of those bands that came out at this time. And then, you know, obviously, you know, as you go down the road a little ways, you got Tool coming into it. This was that, that those bridge groups, you know, that, that were connecting, you know, what we came from to what's coming. You know, they, they kind of kept us all in something a little, at least a little bit tasteful at the time. But yeah, there was some really great music. Yes, sir. Well, they're considered the old-timers in the Seattle scene. Queensryche, 1990, their career, career-topping album, Empire. Well, what's your take with uh, Queensryche? Empire fan? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you didn't think it could get better after Mindcrime, they come back, and they come back. They didn't copy Mindcrime all over again, which a lot of bands would have done. They came back, no concept album, shorter songs, ballad, radio-friendly, variety, saxophones in there, mood changes. It was really a, a progressive album at that time and really very thoughtful, um, intricate lyrics. And I think it saw that, let's say, a different side of Jeff Tate that would come on The Promised Land and then pretty much for the rest of the career in his band. But it, uh, it elevated him into arena status, they were up there now. I mean, I saw them at the Meadowlands Arena, probably maybe one of the biggest shows of their career, 19,000 people headlining. Um, and on top of it, the tour, they did the unthinkable. They, they played like half of the album to open the show. Then they did all of Operation Mindcrime complete, which they did not have a chance to do 
on the Mindcrime promo, and then they came back and finished out Empire and did some encores, like a yeah. two-hour, 20-minute show. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah, Unreal. Yeah. That's all I can say. Ian, what's your take on Empire? Love it. Favorite song? Not, favorite I, song? Believe it or not, favorite song is anybody listening. I love it just because of the the depth and the intricacies that go into the song. Um, it's just such a well crafted song and it goes from this nice melodic very majestic and then all of a sudden do do is there anybody listening and i was like oh my god this guy you know it's such a good album and you know the one thing that goes not mentioned enough is that when they were doing all of the mtv unplugs was right around this time period when they really got started queensrike did their set and they took a bunch of songs. One of the songs that they took was the song Della Brown off this album. And they did it on acoustic. And it is one of the coolest grooving songs ever when they do it on acoustic. And then they did the same thing with Take Hold of the Flame. You know, they did all these classic songs. But Empire was a great album, man. And you hit it on the head. I mean, this was this was their apex. You know, I mean, they went yeah. from, you know, mind crime to this. And it's like, wow, just mind blowing. Yeah. Great stuff. I like Mind Crime better, but I'm not being a get off my lawn guy. I love right. Empire, but Mind Crime yeah. is. Oh, it's just, uh, just yeah. genius. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Jet City Women, um, like you said, Della Brown. What else is on there? Um, best I Can. And, uh, yeah. Best I Can. Empire, yeah. the title track. Yeah. I mean, and that song, Empire, man, that's a. That's a freaking pretty dark, heavy song too. At the time, yep. you know when they when they were doing that, you know lyrical content and stuff. You know, not for anything. Stuff. We've Very always heavy. talked about the five packs bands that like their first five albums, the first five yeah. Maiden, the first five Metallica. You know, yeah. uh, Slayer, Megadeth. But you put those first five Queensrÿche. Oh yeah. Oh my God, Easy. that's yeah. You know, Easy. and then you compare a yeah. band like Queensrÿche. To a band like Motley Crue. Are you kidding me? Like the first right. the first five songs, the albums of Motley Crue. Get out of here. Fair point. Good point, Vern. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's another. That's a new show. You know, that's a topic. Right yeah. there. You know, uh, who, yeah. point, counterpoint, fire and yeah. ice, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Now I'm fired up. Sure. All right. What else we got on here? You know what? I'm going to send well, it over to Ian. Okay. Uh, well, well, well you to say continue something? on the acoustic. I was going to say continue on the acoustic path and take it over to Tesla, Ian. Yeah, the five man acoustical jam that was uh, that was a big thing at the time. You know, when they did the song Signs, you know, I mean, you couldn't turn on anything and not hear them doing that song. And you know, when they would stop and you know on their their tours, you know, they used they started getting to a point where they would actually have a an acoustic break. Kind of like, uh, you know, Zeppelin and Aerosmith and all those bands would do. And they get out there and jam it. But that was a really, really cool album at the time. I remember that. And it was, you, it was something I don't think that the rest of us maybe would have anticipated at the time because of what they did with radio controversy, you know, after mechanical resonance, you know, I mean, they, they, you know, they were, you could see them, you know, cementing themselves as that type of, 
just really great hard rock band. And then they came out with and showed a whole other side. It was really cool stuff, you know, and they fit and I, perfectly. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, and it's and exactly what you stated about Queensryche on the MTV special is they went out and they recrafted their own songs. I yeah. mean, coming at you live that led into trucking a cover of trucking from the dead was awesome. Completely like a country, country style song. You had signs. I mean, yeah. Lodi from John Fogarty or Creedence Clearwater Lord Revival. That was awesome. That was flew under the radar. Yeah. And I think that was the theme of it. It was how they actually recrafted their songs, which made it almost like listening to a new album. It wasn't yeah. just another live album. That, that last summer, well, this summer when we interviewed Brian Wheat, had a chance to interview him twice, and he expanded on all that, how that five-man acoustical jam just came about. It wasn't like, um, it came about very quickly, and then, not jumping ahead a little bit, but they tried taking that on the road that didn't have the same magic, and that's what he said, that magic of the five-man, and talk about lightning in a bottle. The cool part about it is, you know, you had Stevie Ray Vaughan doing the, you know, the the unplugged. You know, you had uh, Queensryche doing it. You know, you had at this time, you know, Tesla doing, uh, you know, the five man acoustical jam. You know, you had all these bands that were getting in there. But like you were pointed out, Vern, you know, for them to go on the road and try to repu- replicate that magic, that was something that some of the bands that came down the pipe later on weren't able to do well. You know, you would not see Stone Temple Pilots or any of those or Pearl Jam breaking into an acoustic set because the kids wanted to hear the hits. They didn't want to hear them reinterpreting their hits because they only had one album at the time where Queensryche had a body of work. Tesla had a body of work plus other stuff. You know, all these bands had stuff to pull from and they were able to recraft it and make it cool. You know, and that's, I think that right there is a big difference, you know, when it comes to that type of musicianship and that type of um, guts you yeah. know, guts is probably the biggest thing. I think the whole San Francisco, even though they're from Sacramento, that California yeah. feel that the band had an old soul to it. Oh. Brian Brian Wheat was, you know, an older big Beatles guy, sixties, and even then sure. their early management and their producer, yeah. you know. Great stuff. Uh let's see what else we have. Uh the uh Scorpions. Uh, Crazy World, some of these old 80s arena bands, Scorpions, Crazy World, following up, Love It First Sting, and um, uh, Savage Amusement. Yeah, Savage Amusement. Well, yep. any love for uh, Crazy World? It's good. It's the, it's a Scorpions 80s, early 90s album, Tease Me, Please Me, the title track, did the yeah. big arena tours, Cool <laughs> Stage, Winds of Change, about the uh, you know the communist countries and the Eastern Bloc coming down. That's yeah. probably about it. Don't need to spend too much time huh. on it. Had the two big hits. Well, uh, we, we all learned. Know. We all learned where Gorky Park was. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, now you're right. So, um, the Scorpions were putting it out. ACDC, Razor's Edge. Good album. So that, that I think we we talked about this pre-show. To me, that was a, a rebound album. It came yeah. back. Big songs. MTV videos, Money Talks, Thunderstruck is at every sporting event. They played at my kids' sports games now. It, it, you know, big tour. They had LA Guns opening, Love Hate. Like, just they brought back Sin City into the set list. They played like a two hour, 15 minute show. It was definitely ACDC, new drummer, Chris Slade in there for Phil Rudd. They were really, really big, doing the big festivals in Europe. 
big stuff from those guys. The production on this album was very, you could see it, you know, sitting next to an empire or, uh, you know, any of these bands that, you know, came out at the time, it was just in your face, you know, ACDC, you know, like, you know, you, the riffs were there, but modified almost, you know, they were, it's almost like they were vamped up for 1990 and the, you know, that double live that came off, you know, this, the tour with this, that's a freaking great live album, man. I love that live album. It's so, it's just so big and powerful, man. A lot of great material. Uh, what about Pantera? Cowboys from Hell. Love it. Were you into it when it came out or is it? Yes. Yep. Yep. I remember, I can remember seeing the video for Cowboys from Hell. And that was something that, that grabbed me. I was like, oh, what are these? What's this? You know, I'll take a little bit more of that. And then as time went on, you know, you get introduced to exactly who they are. You know, they start when they did the Monsters of Rock tour in uh, uh, Russia with uh, Priest. You know, they were opening up for Priest and they were showing those highlights of the stuff that you would see later on as the videos for Primal Concrete Sledge and Domination yeah, yeah. and stuff like that when they were playing it live, you know, and you watch them. It's like, holy shit, these guys are insane. This is incredible. You know, it was like a, it was that breath of fresh air that some of the thrash stuff needed because some of it kind of stayed too much in the track, whereas we discussed like with the Anthraxes and Testament, mm-hmm. you know, even with Slayer and, and obviously with, you know, Megadeth, they started to, the musicianship started to to expand a little bit more. That's what Pantera brought in. You know, they had that kind of groove and swagger, but man, it was all about these kick-ass tunes and they just did it right from the beginning. I didn't go back and, and check out, uh, you know, Projects in the Jungle or, or whatever the hell it was and uh, <laughs> Metal Magic not until way later. And I was like, yeah, okay. It's a good thing. I didn't get into it at the time, you know, but yeah, this is a great album. I loved it. Yeah. I never yeah. Uh, tell you the truth. I wasn't, I didn't see the visual of Pantera. Um, they never grabbed me. They never really it did. Took them, it took them time to grow. It took them time to grow. I mean, that was their debut in 90, but they really were, it was a slow boil with those guys, right? They, it, it, it ended up supporting Skid Row, I think a year later. And then, I mean, there was a, they were a big influence on Rob Halford leaving Priest and his project, the fight project, which we'll talk about in a couple of years. Yeah. That was a very big influence with Pantera. Um, but any, but any event, but yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, how about, uh, just changing gears, guys? We got some other, let's say ones that, that should get some attention even quickly. We have, uh, a quick one. Dio lock up the wolves. Nothing too crazy about this album, but it was uh, a new lineup. He had Rowan Robertson on guitar. Yep. This kid was 18 at the time, 17. He had uh, Jens Johansson from Ingve, Simon Wright. Um, they took Ingve out on the road. He was playing more smaller places this tour. He brought back some rainbow medleys. Um, it was just a, a good, refreshing time there. Um, and then you had, like, you know, one of my personal favorites. I always had a passion for uh, the Tony Martin led Black Sabbath, the uh, release Tear, which was a more mature album over Headless Cross. It had uh, a lot more acoustic and uh, more broader based songs. Neil Murray actually played on the album. It was uh, generally a loose theme about uh, the influence of the Nordic gods. And uh, unfortunately that was a, an album that uh, didn't do well in the States. They never made it over here to tour, but definitely a good one to uh, listen to. And then let's talk about the super group of the year, the damn Yankees, Vern, ah. 
You know all the players in the damn Yankees. Let's hear about the damn Yankees. Love the damn Yankees. Fucking Nugent, uh, Tommy Shaw, um, Jack Blades, Michael Cardalone on drums. Uh, that, that just came out, and me and a good friend, Kale Jammer, we saw this tour at least 10 times. You know, they played everywhere. Fucking to this day, I still love it. And how about that? Like, they opening up for Bad Company. And I love the Brian Howe era of Bad Company. Don't get me wrong. That stuff was good. Holy water and no smoke without a fire. But they could not follow the damn Yankees after that. Didn't I saw they the show switch New York. that? I thought they flipped. They did. This, the next summer, they took the headline slot. Nugent fit in there just like a glove. Fucking oh, loved yeah. him. Ian? Well, and, you know, you get, you know, his... I think that, you know, the one thing that was, you know, because when Ted writes, Ted writes what what Ted is very well in this path. But you take two song crafters like Jack Blades and Tommy Shaw and you have them say, okay, well, Ted, let's try something like this. And now it kind of gives him this big open, uh, you know, uh, platform to be able to display Ted on. Yeah. You know, and he puts his insight in there. And that, I mean, that was just a really great, great hard rock album, man. I mean, for that time, that time period, that kind of music, it was just huge. And it was everywhere. There were no super groups at that time, especially yeah. made up of three guys from hard rock, metal, classic rock music. It just kind of came out of nowhere. It just absolutely. And it was a shame it was only short lived. A couple of albums they talk about getting together. It may or may not ever happen, but definitely. I think we can all appreciate that one. Now, here's right. one I'd like to get into. It's a one-two punch. Um, you have the Bruce Dickinson Tattooed Millionaire album and then followed up with Iron Maiden's No Prayer for the Dying. So I'll get it started first. I loved Tattooed Millionaire. I don't know what you guys think about it. I think it was really, really different. You know, he had Yannick Gers out there who would join Maiden on the tour. They were short, more rock, very melodic songs. It was great to see. I saw three of those shows in the clubs, and it was just seeing Bruce up there. He did a free cover. He did, uh, I think he did Sin City on that tour. It was just something at that time that I wasn't familiar with where these major, major artists stepped out of their big bands to go out, do a little tour in a club, put a solo album out. It was, a, 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 it was different at the time. That kind of thing doesn't, it doesn't wow the, the audiences anymore. Brett Michaels... Vince Neil can go out and do a solo show at a casino. It doesn't matter. At the time, it did. I'll never forget the Paul Stanley solo tour in 89 where he did deep tracks off of his 78 album and the, and the Kiss deep tracks. Same parallel. What do you guys think of Tattooed Millionaire? I, li I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. Um, hell on, what is it? Hell on Wheels or Hell Wheels? Yeah. Hell on Wheels. Yeah, a Son yeah. of a Gun. Hell on Wheels. Um, son of a Gun. Yeah. Yep. Obviously, the the, the uh, title track. The tattooed Millionaire. Yeah. No, I, I liked it. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see it like you. But um, they encored. I remember as the tour went on, they encored with uh, Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter, which would end up on the next Maiden album. So it was almost like a treat to the fans. Yeah. And then I think, uh, you know, shortly after that, Yannick Gers would be introduced, I think, as the guitarist, if I have the order of it right. Um, but definitely a good one. And you think about that, just to get a solo album and tour, and then come back with a Maiden album later that year in the beginning of the tour. That would never happen in 2022, right? No. Well, and and I like the partnership that he had with Yannick Gers and when Yannick went yep. to Maiden because the the that relationship 
musically that he had with Dickinson was huge. And and you hit it on the head, Walt. He had more of a, he definitely had more of that European hard rock meets metal, very melodic, you know, really good song crafting, a different thing than what Maiden was at their core. But he went in there and, and transitioned to do Maiden effortlessly. And when they ended up regrouping as a three guitar band, I mean, they're just phenomenal when you watch them on stage together. You know, the musicianship that these guys share um, back and forth and be able to tap dance over each other in these parts Ah. and not make it sound like a cluttered mess is actually freaking great. It's funny that you use the word tap dance. I guess (laughs) I can do without Janet Gers and Iron Maiden. (laughs) What? Yeah, I don't need it. Come on. That's the. No, it's a British respect thing. I think he's been in there so long. They're not going to get him out of there. He still looks cool, skinny, tall, and old. He's embarrassed. That, he's that no fucking embarrassing. Dying, uh, no, no, no. Come on, Vern. I, I, but what about No Prayer for the Dying? Let's stay on topic. I, that one, yeah. I think, was a little underwhelming. It, it was, I don't know, it was actually the perfect package with them and Anthrax because it was a good tour together, but I think they were not their best bodies of work overall, those two albums, right? So it didn't get a lot of love. No prayer for the doc. Well, there was the time when Bruce, you know, he was leaving. You know, it's a yeah. been documented. He wasn't getting any chance to express himself. He didn't like where the music was going. It was so he eventually ended up leaving a couple of years later. So listen, let's piggyback on to one that's a, an important one for all of us, I'm sure. And we could have segued real easily a little while ago. But that is the Painkiller album by Judas Priest. We definitely, if we're going from Maiden, we should definitely jump to Priest because that was a huge return to form for these guys. And I know you guys got to agree with me on that. I can remember when that first song dropped and freaking Halford screaming like that. It, that was, it was almost like the gates of hell opening up and getting ready to swallow everybody at once. You know, it was just a great, great, powerful album from beginning to end. Well, he goes out there, shaves his head. He gets the tattoo on the side of his head. He comes out there and you're like, who's this new Rob Halford guy? Like, he's serious metal now, right? Oh, and yeah. then they drop that track on there. The video is scatterbrained. It's like all these changes and it's like, you know, flipping the screens and you can't focus on it. Exactly knew what they were doing. And every song on that album is just killer, totally killer. No filler at all. It's from beginning to end. I listened to it. It's one of those ones I dropped the needle and let it go all the way through, man. No, and it's just, uh, and they they came out, they did those big tours again. We talked about it before. Megadeth and Testament opened in the tour. Then they came back the following summer and they did the Operation Rock and Roll Tour with Alice Cooper, Metal Church, and Motorhead. They toured the shit out of that album and you know, open, I'll never forget opening up with, with Hellbent for Leather. That's usually a, towards the end of the show, and they open oh, that tour sure. with that, coming out on stage with the bike, not ending the show. Yeah. I mean, how right. fucking awesome is that? Setting the point right from the beginning. Right, right. What I remember most was how much I loved this album how, after they regrouped in, what, 05 or 07, and they did Angel of Retribution. Yeah. And with that opening, you know, crescendo with the, yeah. the scream swelling into it. And then all of a sudden it just comes in with the, the double kick just blazing. I was like, 
that's what I loved about Painkiller. That album, it was almost like this is the bookend to the, that type of, of well, song. That, 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 have, that song was left over from that. Oh, was yeah, it really? I read that in, oh. in the KK book. And, uh, oh, cool. I'll fact check this, but that song was a leftover song, and it had to be from that era because there wasn't much, you know, when Painkiller, when when did Rob leave? A year or two later? Yeah. Was, yeah. I, yeah. I think right, right beginning of 92, maybe. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but, like, and so when he came back, you know, the interesting part about Painkiller, too, is there was some uh, suggestion that the lawsuit um, that they had a face in Reno, Nevada, I think earlier that year or later that year, could have been the influence behind the album, right? Because uh, they wanted to come back with a vengeance, very heavy. They were really yeah. emotionally taken back. I mean, that was that was not a heavy metal music incident, but it was in the news. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever seen there's an old documentary that I have on VHS somewhere where they actually interviewed one of the guys that the guy that lived in, in in the shooting and then he eventually passed away, but it was, it was a disaster and it was all about abuse in the households and alcoholism. And, you know, here these guys used substances and somehow they coped with Judas priest music yet somehow the, you know, the, the conservative side turned the music against them and ended up in a court of law. Yeah. You know, these guys could have, could have lost their shirts over this thing and ruined their whole careers, their lives. Right. That was a huge, huge news incident. Right. Well, that was the thing, you know, and, you know, all that the those government panels, you know, based around the PMRC and trying to, you know, uh, censor everything. You know, that was a that was a huge kick right in the ass, you know, and the crazy part about it is it was a freaking liberal, uh, you know, senator's wife. That was the one that started a goddamn thing. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just. No rhyme or reason. It's stupid. That's crazy. I know. But that I think, Ian, you're right. That is the high note of 1990 painkiller. If we had to pick one that we all agree to, I think that's it. You know, yeah. before we conclude, I think a couple other quick shout outs. We said we would come back to them. Uh, sure. Winger uh, released In the Heart of the Young, and they had three monster hits on there. Can't get enough miles away. Easy come, easy go. Big, big uh, airplay there. And one that fell through the cracks that I think is worth as a quick shutout is uh, sh- sh- shutout. shout out Steve Vai's Passion and Warfare. Cool little album, right? Yeah. And uh, yep. and then maybe uh, we should – who can all forget the debut from Slaughter, guys? Come on. <laughs> round of applause. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Stick it to you. Yeah, yeah. Stick it to you is, um, is um, actually a pretty good album. Yeah. Man. Um, I was actually yeah. being uh, facetious and sarcastic, but in any event. I don't. I don't think you were. I think you're saving your your, your guilty pleasure for the end. <laughs> no, no. I was really bummed out about that album, to be honest, because I loved the Vinnie Vincent Invasion, and I thought, oh, here comes Danish Drum and Mark Slaughter and Bobby right. Rock out of the Vinnie Vincent Invasion, and they're going to sure. come in and form this band, and it's just going to be all the same kick-ass music, just without the headaches of Vinnie Vincent, a new guitar player, and it was basically soft crap. Well. Where are they now, and where's Vinny now? Well, Mark Slaughter can't sing anymore, but we won't get into that right now. That's not fair. I'm sure he's a nice guy. So, hey, let's leave this on a high note, right? Yep. The Grammys got it right. The previous year was Jethro Tull. This year, Metallica, for the song one, gets the Grammy. They got it right. Ah, They may not have repeated it ever again, but, hey, it was cool at that particular time. A uh, couple, couple sidebars. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Ian. Go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, you know, like Walt likes to, to point out on occasion, anybody that follows us should definitely do themselves a service. And, and you know, if you aren't familiar with stuff, check out the stuff from 1990, because there really is a broad palette of music that's out there. And there's a lot of stuff that we didn't cover because there was so much material, but these are the, you know, the ones that we were highlighting the most. So now well said, because I just want to make note of um, a couple uh, Chicago sludgers trouble came out with their debut. Uh, Death angel came out with X three annihilator uh, Canadian metal. Never, never land King diamond came out with the eye. You guys are big Diamond fans. Were you a fan of this, or it's just King just doing what King does? Just continuation of King. Yeah. You know, it was something that you know deserves a mention. You know, but I mean, King at this point was almost like a uh, a machine in his own yeah. way. You know, you watch those albums in a row. You know, and it's almost like a continuation of of a grand painting. It's still great material, but you know, it's not like you know. Oh, I gotta go out and get the eye. You know, well, if you get it right. later, you can get it. You know, right. And then another cool album, uh, Jane's Addiction. They, they, they got a little oh, mainstream. Yeah. That uh, Ritual to Habitual, Caught Stealing. And, yep. you know, the fun fact with that, I think I have one on uh-huh. Metal Walt with the with the shows. Uh-huh. Now, I you know, we could go head to head. But it was the spring of 1991. Jane's Addiction had a special show in Rochester at the War Memorial. Totally, cool. like, such a treat. It was sold yeah. out, and remember, it was 1991. It was, and they were a uh, alternative, like they were different. They weren't grunge. Yeah, sure. yeah. They were like true yeah. alternative from the 80s. And I fell in love with that band when I went there, and uh, it was just great. But that album, they played yeah. that. They played all of Nothing Shocking. Ted just admitted, um, you know, Ocean Song. Jane says, "Oh my God." Well, that's why I said, though, that's, you know, they were part of that, you know, that that under that interweaving tapestry that was carrying us through, you know, when things were changing over into the, the new alternative, you know, so. If you're going to give a shout out to Jane's Addiction, I have to give a shout out to myself, to my appreciation for one of my all time favorite bands, Primus, who released their debut Frizzle Fry that year. Um and, uh, yeah, they're another weird, hard rock, funky, experimental, avant-garde band, but they fall into this category in a weird kind of way. And they have big associations down the road with Rush. I'm going to I'm gonna have Walt bring this home. He's going to give us a preview. But I want to say, I want to say that the old get-off-my-long guy, which is the Vernomatic, learned something from my two younger co-hosts tonight that maybe, just maybe... I have some heavy metal homework to do and revisit some of this 1990 stuff. Thank you. Thank you. What was 91 about? Massive releases from two really big bands. I'm not going to name them. You should know of this. Um, but then under the radar, you have really strong releases from a lot, a lot, a lot of established name bands. It's just one of those years when you look at 91 it's got a lot of good, some great releases. It just doesn't have that mass appeal and the chart toppers that you saw in the peak of the 80s. And I think that's sort of a trend to come through the 90s and the 2000s. Um, some other things, there were some you know, band members that left established bands. One band, a major band, just called it quits at that time. And then there were two, actually three really big deaths 
um, from three major artists in the rock and hard rock scene that would definitely uh, have an impact on the scene. You know what? And, and just when we all get worried that there's not enough content to cover as we get into these different non-sexy years, we're going probably overtime. And that's a good thing, right? <laughs> well, guys, this has been great. And we will put together 91 ASAP. So for my co-hosts, Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke, I'm the Vernomatic. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. And as we always say, keep it heavy. See you, gang. Metal for Life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy.